Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode five of the Rovers Returned podcast. I'm Paul Worthington and joined by my co-host, Simon Burns. On tonight's episode, we're going to be reviewing the Paul Ince era of Blackburn Rovers. And while Ince was only in charge for less than six months, there is no shortage of material or talking points, which we'll get into. For those who need reminding, Paul Ince was appointed manager following the departure of Mark Hughes, which was the focus of our last episode. And that was back in the summer of 2008. He was quickly dismissed following a woeful run of form in November the same year after just 17 games in charge. So with that, Simon, good to see you again. Um, I think we both had some fun looking back uh, at this one in terms of remembering uh, a lot of the stories and the sagas of involving around Paul Ince. So I'm really just keen to kick this thing off and ask you, you know, when your, first, when your mind first turns to, to Paul Ince and Blackburn Rovers, what's your main, what's your main memory? Um, well, first off, uh, great to be here, Paul. I'm, I'm really, really excited about um, getting into the into the details of the of the Paul Ince, Paul Ince experiment. I guess is uh, is how it could favor, favorably be described. Um, my main memory is um, is actually a really positive one, which is I, I think in of itself quite odd, considering how ultimately calamitous uh, Paul Ince's uh, time at, at Blackburn Rovers um, was. But um, he did he did oversee a, a fine win in his first game, a three-two away win at uh, at Goodison at Goodison Park, Fortress Goodison, um, and in really dramatic circumstances. I mean, um, Everton um, having gone behind um, to a I think a really fantastic David Dunn opener, fantastic um, goal, amazing, amazing, just kind of like vintage and kind of like. Bent it around the keeper, fantastic finish. On his left um, foot as well, on his left foot. Oh God, do we ever need any more proof of just kind of Damien, sorry, David Dunn as such a virtuoso performer. But but the team kind of inevitably fell behind 2-1. Um, but then not only equalise, kind of Ouya kind of bundles it in at the death uh, to make it 3-2 and Blackburn go on to win the game. And there was... Um, I was actually on holiday at the time and I remember going onto rovers.co.uk, checking out the gallery of, uh, of images. And there's just a fantastic one of, of Ince in this kind of grey suit, just like, like giving Pedersen, I think, an absolute bear hug. And there's like Dunn celebrating in the background. And it's just such an image of like pure emotion, togetherness. I was like, wow, that is a fantastic result. Dramatic circumstances. What a way to kind of... Kick, kick off this era, an era that, well, after a pre-season that had been, you know, not all plain sailing. So, yeah, an amazing, amazing memory um, made all the more kind of poignant considering just how quickly things came, uh, came to unravel. But um, go on, Paul, like I, I've, I've given a <laughs> perhaps quite surprisingly positive uh, take on Paul Ince's uh, tenure. Where, where, where do you stand in, in the memory the memory stakes. Yeah, no, I, I think you know we we try to provide a balanced perspective, and you know, you're you're providing <laughs> that that balance of the positives. And I actually I actually went back on YouTube and watched the highlights of that game just to kind of reminisce about because I, I saw you you'd made a note about how good the David Dunn goal was, and I couldn't actually remember it, so I went back and watched it. And yeah, you're right, it is kind of like classic David Dunn in the sense that he gathers the ball up, cuts inside on, on onto his left. And bends it around the keeper from outside the box, and yeah, it was just just vintage stuff from from him. And and yeah, it started so positive, like positively, like you said. Although even in the game, there were even from the highlights, there are clearly some warning signs. Uh, not from, like Paul Robert, the, the Paul Robinson's first goal we conceded as a Blackburn Roll, Rovers goalkeeper, uh, which we'll get onto in more detail, was horrific in terms of his placement, <laughs> uh, in terms of getting beaten. And it was it was just so interesting to see who scored the free kick, and it was like uh, Arteta. And it's like, yeah. wow, that's like 13 years ago. Now he's the manager of Arsenal. Um, Looks exactly there. the same. Like exactly He hasn't aged same. a day, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah, I, that, yeah. <laughs> that was my first thought as well when I, when I saw that. But I think the thing, the other warning sign I got from the highlights, admittedly, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of like deducing these kind of like takeaways from three minutes of compressed YouTube video, was the, I think it was the goal, it was, a, it was Everton's second goal where they take the lead. And it's a cross in from the left, and it's Yukubu who who scores it. And it's so funny because as the ball's on the left hand side, 
there's these, this is swathe of like Everton players like running into the box. There's no joke about four Everton players running in on marks and they're all kind of lining up for this free header. And it just felt like, Ooh, where's the centre midfield gone in this game? <laughs> yeah. Which yeah, I think was a bit of a bit of a concern. And I, I think that was a really just like illustrative example. And looking back, you just kind of saw that. And it kind of made me smile in terms of, OK, yeah, here are some of the warning signs. We, we know we know how this will play out. Yeah, we, this is not going to end well. But no, I really, I really, I really like that, and I like that the opening day of the season gets a shout out. And not, I think also we should give a shout out to the incredible away kit uh, that the team is wearing—the classic red and black. Did you have that mm. uh, away kit? No, no, I don't actually. I had the I had the home kit from the season before, but this was a fantastic away strip. I think red and black is Blackburn Rovers' archetypal away strip. But it had done away with I think the Bet Twenty Four sponsorship, which always kind of jarred a little bit and got. Classic crown paints. I think crown paints being a Blackburn based uh, company yeah. as well. Local, it was just like, locally sourced. Local, local business, you know, brilliant. Yeah. Three points, yeah. new kit, new sponsor, just fantastic, you know. Yeah. No, I I I had I had the home shirt from the crown paints. Like I just I just felt that it I, I never felt comfortable like having like a betting company uh you know walking around <laughs> with a betting advert on my chest. Crown paints. I would buy paint, so therefore I feel comfortable <laughs> wearing a crown. You didn't paint. like the claims management later on, did you? I don't want to name <laughs> names, but you know, I don't think I don't think I did. I actually, it's actually been a really bad run for me in terms of buying kits because our list of sponsors has not been the most kind of like uh, socially, uh, uh, I guess, useful uh, businesses in terms of the, the kind of the work that they do. So I've actually had a bad run of not being able to buy a kit because of my kind of like stance of, I don't really want to be associated with that, with that brand. But anyway, getting, going off track a little bit here. Uh, let me, <laughs> let me bring it back and sort of like talk about my, my main memory. And I'm going to bring it down a little bit now, which I think is apt given the conversation is, is the Paul and Sierra of Blackburn Rovers. It's actually the only away game I went to under Paul Ince, which was Bolton away. So big, big local derby. And it was terrible. It was it was a, it was a shocking game. It was it was nil nil. So we, we didn't we didn't lose. But it was, you know, those games you go to and you just come away with it and you think you just don't see where where the direction or, or like the actual st- strategy that is, the team is trying to employ. Mm. You know, I mean, the two two of the main things. I know there are a few things that stood out to me that day, and I can still remember to this day. Robbie Fowler, for one, was was starting up front, so <laughs> that was yeah. that was a bit of a, a kick in the in the kick in the stomach. Um, Benny McCarthy was on the bench. Not sure if that was like injury or what related, but when you're starting Robbie Fowler over Benny McCarthy, I mean, I've got some serious question marks there. And he had a shocker. He he just looked so out of place in in, in that team. We had um, Warnock, Stephen Warnock was playing left wing, <laughs> so that was uh, that was again a strange decision for our best our best left back. And then Andre yeah. Uya, Andre Uya was playing left back, and I, I have a very very even to this day, like thirteen years later, I have a very vivid memory of we are sat behind the goal, and so the Rovers are kicking away from us to the other end, and Uya is playing left back, and the ball comes to him, and he tries to take a pass first time. And being a naturally right-footed player, he tries to take the pass up the line with his right foot rather than his left foot. And instead of like actually passing it up the line where you'd want him to pass, he just passes it straight out of play (laughs) 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 because of the because of the direction and and the angles of him using his right foot. And it was just it was just such an illustrative example of wow, you're playing a lot of people who out of position, and you've also got this clearly has been striker up front. And I think back at the time, Bolton were in a really bad run of form and we still couldn't beat them. And it was just it was just such a depressing game to go to. And I think at that point, it was clearly there were already massive warning signs in terms of what was going on. But that game really sticks in my mind. And fortunately, it was the only in-game away game I went to because it was actually quite useful for me at the time because I was I was at university. I just started university in Manchester. So it was only like a short train ride. Uh, up the road. Well, there you go. I mean, that's, actually, that's, that's some consolation. It was, not, it was a waste of a Saturday, if you're that way. Um, <laughs> that, so, was, that was still fairly, I mean, it's all relative, isn't it? I mean, he only had like, um, what, 17 games. So, but that was yeah, still as quite a sample good. size, it's quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. But that was before things got really bad. As, as, a, as, a, as a sample, up until that point, it was, it was middling to poor rather than appalling. Um, which is 
which is what it became. But um, but yeah, um, let's <laughs> let let's let's revert to to the later games uh, and uh, yeah, what, what they, I think we've given our to. yeah exactly we've given our kind of like initial takes and memories of of what we remembered, but. Let's kind of kind of go back to the beginning of of, of the Insira to try to try to like unpack what went wrong and and how and why. So you know we we, we think of the June two thousand eight Hughes has left, Ince has come in. It's a big summer for the club actually because you've got a number of like significant players who are potentially getting their heads turned about leaving. You've got this mm. new unknown manager, clearly a very good player in his time. So you're hoping for the best and thinking that this could be another Hughes type signing. How how do you think about those that that initial summer the signings him coming in? What are your thoughts on reflection about how you judge that in hindsight? Um, I think I think first off, I mean, I was very I was very positive about the Ince appointment when it was first made. I thought it was uh, an approach that had, that had worked for Blackburn Rovers previously. Um, he. I, I was I was um, a huge appointment, perhaps with even arguably with even less kind of grounding, um, considering that he hadn't played, he hadn't managed it in in club football before. Um, Paul Ince um, had and had had done so successfully, albeit at, at League Two level. <laughs> As I'm saying out loud, just does seem a little bit ridiculous. Um, in terms of the jump up to a pretty established Premier League, club. It, it, it feels like saying. It feels like saying. I reckon he'd be a really good prime minister. He's been a fantastic <laughs> local councillor. <laughs> yeah, he's got all the creds. Um, but let's, yeah, um, yeah. God, that does sound quite classical. But um, that that being said, um, I think I I. I, I got the impression, and this is obviously only from kind of reading the Lancashire Reading Telegraph and speaking probably to you, um, that, that, you know, the mood music was that um, a lot of the, or the, some of the big transfers had already been done before he'd, he, he'd arrived. So Friedel to Villa, which huge, huge kind of loss for Blackburn, like Friedel had been an ever-present uh, in goal for for a, a really significant amount of time had just been just been an absolute colossus. So to lose him, but for I think a half decent transfer fee, I think we made money at least on selling him and bringing in um, Paul Robinson. That's I remember all that again the six oh six message board on like BBC saying like good bit of business for Blackburn, you know, like Friedel's gone on to a. I guess a bigger club in Aston Villa, but they brought in a kind of former England international, somebody's in, in Paul Robinson who played at a big club and maybe just needed his his, his confidence back, which again probably kind of should have uh, set alarm bells ringing. But um, but yeah, that so that uh, that was a bit like concerning, but not massively so. Bentley had been so sublime the previous kind of two or three years. He was, he was always going to go. Um, and we got a really good transfer fee for him um, from Tottenham. Um, and the fact that Santa Cruz stayed, those were kind of three of my kind of like big takeaways. And like, so you've lost one talismanic figure, but you've, you've also kept one and you've kept Benny McCarthy as well. who's was really good from the season before you brought in seemingly a, a half decent keeper to replace your outstanding keeper not terrible but then it was the yeah it really was the Robbie Fowler come on you pick up pick up the pick up the thread with when, when did you first hear that we were getting Robbie Fowler what did that make you feel I kind of felt like it was a joke I thought I genuinely thought it was a joke at first I was like there's no way we can be we can be signing Robbie Fowler and then I thought well has the club got some kind of like weird ambition of signing or, or, or having played for the, the the most the highest scorers of the Premier League history because we'd already had we already had Alan Shearer we had Andy Cole it's like well this is our last shot at getting Robbie Fowler on the books so we've got probably to probably wasn't us we've got to cross him off to make sure we've got him and yeah I, it was it just <laughs> it just felt like such a there was there was a, it was all, it felt, I was going to say it felt like such a desperation signing but I think it was more than that I think I think that. In, in researching this, like I found a really interesting like fan blog from from back at the summer. Uh, like it was it was an account of pre season that that's that that season, and 
the assessment <laughs> the assessment of this Rovers fan here and it's not clear who who the person is but it's, it's a really well written piece um was basically it's just the old boys network old boys club that like you know Ince and Fowler knew each other and this was just in sorting him out with a with a payday which is just outrageous if that was true and I can't believe it to be true because how can you look at him compared and stood next to Roque Santa Cruz and Benny McCarthy <laughs> who both just had incredible like prolific seasons the two preceding years and say yeah Robbie Fowler is the thing that's missing from from this lineup it just I mean, you know, we, we've talked about this before it goes against the philosophy of what Blackburn Rovers should be about around in terms mm. of value investing using the limited resource we have to unearth gems that we think will be immediate impacts or things we can sell on the long term some of those work out like David Bentley in terms of their impactful and you sell them on some of them are impactful like John Stead but actually they don't really develop in the same way but this you look I think you can say John Stead served his purpose and transfer fee Robbie mm. Fowler fits into a brass bracket that doesn't really make any sense in any respect whatsoever. And that was just a massive telling sign, particularly when you look at the other transfers we brought in that summer. It's a, it's such a woeful list. And if I'm going to, on, on, on the Friedel thing, and then something I hadn't really appreciated until again, kind of like reliving this era by, by researching it for the episode, is that I forgot that Friedel actually was still here when Ince arrived. And yeah. Ince, well, his, his position on it was that he decided not to stand in Friedel's way. But I think you pointed me to an interesting article saying that actually Friedel and Ince didn't, they didn't get on. And there was actually mm. a friction between the two. And that you know, for the personalities involved, Ince couldn't get past that and decided to let him walk. And they let go of probably the best keeper that we've had in a long time. And just who was one of the top three keepers in the Premier League in the first yeah. 10 years of the 2000s. And I don't say that lightly i genuinely do say that as in, in all seriousness like friedel was just unbelievable prolific I mean, goal scorer goal stopper <laughs> <laughs> he was a goal scorer not prolific but a prolific goal stopper definitely yeah yeah, yeah. but uh, you, you're completely right and i mean that is that is born out in the in the kind of the commentary about that uh, about that transfer at least the fact that friedel's kind of uh, abilities and credentials were just absolutely sky high um and yeah it was it was really kind of damning on Ince like reading up on this as a as a consequence of preparing for, for for the show and just seeing that yeah it actually wasn't it wasn't a done deal Friedel was seemingly still still a Blackburn Rovers player still open to persuasion and it was just no that's he he, he got he for whatever reason just didn't didn't Kind of take to to Paul Ince and uh, and that and that was that and that's um that is that that does not reflect well on on Ince in any way shape or form and just just to pick up, pick up on the the blog that you you flagged I I, I also read, read that and I just I, I was just laughing so much when it was like I think the comment on Fowler was that he will he looks he looks so much like he belongs in a vets league. <laughs> <laughs> Just, just from an athletic perspective, I think I think they said he was top heavy. He, he really, really was, and it's just like God, you've got yeah, just a, a fantastic strikers there already. What, what is the gap that Robbie Fowler is is filling? But um, anyway, anyway, yeah, no, that's, that's that's so true, and I think um, I think the thing that I realize in hindsight as well is just when you look. When you look back at, I'm just going back to the Friedel point for a second. When you look back now and we, we talk about it and put it together in terms of the, you, you can think about why Friedel decided to leave at that point. That is such, that must send such a powerful message through to the dressing room, right? Mm -hmm. That your sort of stalwart keeper who is a Blackburn Rovers kind of legend by that point mm -hmm. decides at that moment as, an, as a new manager comes in and goes, no, I'm not, not for me. I'm done. I'm done with this. Like, if you're a player and you're looking at Friedel leaving at that moment, you must be thinking, well, what's he, what's he seeing that I've not seen yet? And I wouldn't fill me with confidence going in that that, that is something that we're going to have a really uptick in form. So I think no. the, more, the more I kind of reflect on the Friedel, the Friedel departure, I think probably the more impactful it probably was in the dressing room than I probably realize and would have thought possible at the time because like you i think i probably tried to persuade myself that paul robinson 
was the answer to the, the, the solution or the problem of, of replacing Friedel. And sadly, mm. he wasn't. He was yeah. okay, but he wasn't he wasn't like England number one quality, what you'd expect from that kind of level of player. He was nowhere near Friedel. He never was. No, no. I mean, however good he once was, clearly he was he was on he was on the downward uh, slide um, when joining when joining Blackburn Rovers. And yeah, his confidence, his confidence just looked just just from that Everton game alone, his confidence looked absolutely shot. But um, it's really interesting what you say about the um, almost like what. What what would you, as a fellow pro, think having seen an absolute legend of the dressing room kind of walk out in response to this um, this new manager arriving? Um, because I think even in the the match report for the Everton game, it it hints at or, or references um, potential kind of dressing room and rest in the in the summer. Um, so clearly, all wasn't wasn't well behind behind the scenes and. I found um I found an interview with um with Pedersen, I think even from like 2020. Did you see it? And it yeah, when I he's did. just saying like funny. it was just it's just crazy. It's like Paul Lintz, he was about like pushing us into the red zone and like going like going for seemingly kind of interminable games of like five aside, like the gate the, the day before a game, just to get us really, really kind of angry and pumped up. And it's just like that is just there is no there is no like sophistication or kind of analytical approach to, to what he's doing and I guess again I don't know what Mark Hughes was like behind the scenes but you, you get the impression that he is quite or was quite kind of intelligent in his in his approach to the game and god just having having Paul Lintz coming in if if indeed Pedersen's story is to be believed god that that must have been a pretty big culture shock yeah, I, I, that's a really good shout. I know it's a really interesting article. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought it to my attention because I thought the thing that Pedersen said at the end was was particularly telling, saying, great guy, great, you know, nice family, great guy. But mm. Mm, was he ready for Premier League management at that point of his career? Mm. No, he wasn't. And yeah. if, you look, if you go back to the whole process around the hiring, the special dispensation that we applied for and got to fast track him to the position because he didn't have the requisite training badges. He hadn't been through the, the formalized process. It was just a case of, well, he, he, it's Paul Ince. He was a big player. And to your point, he's been a manager in League Two. Let's just give him a bit of a go and like just yeah. pretend it's okay. And, yeah. you know, if his name wasn't Paul Ince, he's probably not getting approval to take over. And nor are we taking the risk, really. We are, we're, we're kind of investing in the name. We're investing in name recognition, right? That we think that they're interested mm. in the answer. And I think to your point about training methods and things like that, well, if you've not studied, <clears throat> excuse me, if you've not studied to, to be a, a, a licensed coach at the highest level, then how, how do you think you're actually going to be able to do it? Now, hmm. this, is, this is kind of like, I think, old school versus like new world kind of like ideas of management and training coming here, right? Because I'm sure that people who watch football in the 70s and 80s would say, oh, Brian Clough didn't have to do his badges to be an amazing manager. Yeah, but I think the game is, I think, I think the, the game, not necessarily the game itself, but the whole process of managing clubs, squads, yeah. squad development, everything around it, sports science has got more complicated and it mm -hmm. does require a level of expertise and sophistication. And I think you do see that creeping into the game now. I mean, people love Gary Neville, don't they, in terms of his kind of like, uh, the, the, the way he tries to bring on analysis compared to what we had back in the day with, say, Andy Gray and people like that when they were the co-commentator with Martin Tyler. But mm. I think Ince is, a, is an example of someone who just goes, no, I, I'm, I'm kind of like anti-establishment. I don't want to do the, I don't want to put in the hard work. I just know I can do it. And that, really that was what, it was, it's difficult to know, obviously, when you're just going off kind of fragments of memory and then looking up kind of old, um, old kind of like, um, articles from kind of you know 12 13 years ago um kind of what to believe um but it, what kind of comes across is is as you kind of as you kind of allude to like a a certain um like defiance from ince like i don't i don't need to do this i don't like i i think there was one article where it was like he'd actually he'd been given the opportunity to kind of or given time, I think in a pretty, in, in maybe in the Macclesfield role or something like that to kind of go and actually do his badges and find time. It's like, no, 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 I don't need to. I can, I can do my, you know, apprenticeship on the job and that should be enough maybe because I am, you know, the self-styled governor. 
And it's just, it's a bit of like post hoc rationalization now that we know how it turned out. And there are other kind of signs in his approach that point towards this, but just quite a, a if you're being charitable about it, just quite a, quite a naive um, approach to, to management. Um, certainly managing like a, a solid, then a very solid Premier League football club, which, yeah, I mean, it, what, what do you make of this? Is, it, is this the first real shot across the bowels for kind of like John Williams? Like this is a, this is, this has been a bad decision. And this is, this is really, this is this reflecting very badly on the kind of the, the powers, powers at the very top of Blackburn Rovers. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's interesting you mentioned John Williams. And I think that's the, that's where we need to need to go. Um, because if you think about the hiring and bringing him in, you're, you're taking a, a, a bit of a leap of faith on an unknown quantity from someone who hasn't got the requisite experience or even pedigree of managing at this level. Fair enough, he's played at it. Yeah, get it. We've, we've talked about that. But as Blackburn Rovers as a club, we're so dependent on the revenue from the Premier League and staying in the division. And as we've subsequently learned in terms of what happens when we're not in that division and the, and the pitfalls of that, that that kind of puts us into, that we don't really have time to develop the leadership of the club. We need the leadership to be very strong to know exactly what needs to be done to keep the club competitive in the Premier League so we don't get sucked down into this relegation battle where you know you you do have a chance inevitably of getting uh, getting relegated and mm. it's interesting that clearly through the through the hiring process they decided that he was the right guy now that worries me that you know because as soon as you can't you kind of see him on the tv talking about being manager and reflecting on games i don't know i kind of felt like it was quite obvious fairly early on that like he looked a bit out of his depth kind of way he mm. talked about games similar to how Steve Keane talked about games and we'll, we'll get, on, <laughs> get on that get onto that in a few episodes time the fact that like you can't pick up on that in an interview process that mm. was a warning sign in terms of well you either think he's going to hit the ground running and he is really the next Mark Hughes or you're you're willing to take a bet you're going to have you're going to let him develop in the role and do we have the capacity to do that as a club now, I guess the, one of the counter arguments to that is where you'd say, well, the squad is so good that actually the squad can probably give him a bit of time to adjust and grow in the role because the squad has got so much strength uh, experience around it. I mean, don't forget, mm -hmm. this is still a squad with Warnock, Samba, Nelson, Ouya, uh, Edmonton in the back line. It's a very strong yeah, defense. Yeah. Like, you know, Sa Santa Cruz, McCarthy up front. This is not a bad side, but that philosophy requires the team to buy into him and want to be yeah. that sort of like transitional phase for him to allow him to get up to speed. I clearly think that this never, that, that, that bond never happened and the squad clearly didn't take to him. And that was, that was, well, the, that was the eventual downfall. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, I mean, he wins three of his first um, six games. So there was, yeah. was, was that, was that um, I don't know? Was it was it kind of like a holdover from the the Mark Hughes era? Um, I remember did, at Everton going way outside the kind of the time frame of of, of this this kind of episode in this decade maybe. But when um, I think Martinez took over from um, it may have been even David Moyes at Everton. I might be getting that wrong, but it was like the he, Martinez is bringing real flair and um, building on like all of the defensive solidity that David Moyes instilled in that, in that side. Um, like almost, and like the players, the, the muscle memory of the defence kind of lives on after a manager departs. And then a new kind of perhaps more expansive manager can kind of build on top of those foundations. And um, yeah, maybe, maybe Blackburn were having that a little bit, but in a much, much more compressed period of time with six games when you know they they eked out um some pretty kind of scratchy wins um against god looking back at it against joe kinnear's newcastle <laughs> yeah i i when when i when i saw that that was one of the three victories i'd actually i'd legitimately forgotten that that was that joe kinnear managed newcastle united and, <laughs> yeah. and i think i think i saw that the post-match quotes from ins 
they're, they're quite insulting towards Joe Kinnear as well. It's like, he makes reference to like, even though we're playing Joe Kinnear's Newcastle, we're still playing Newcastle. It's like, that is so offensive, mate. That is so offensive. Even if he's it might so, be his, uh, his comments after games are so they're bizarre. Steve Keen-esque. They're Steve Keen-esque. All yeah, over they, but they're, it's really, I think there was one, I think it might have been after the, the Arsenal game, where he's like, players have been away on international duty. I haven't had enough time with them. And it's just like, it's really a real sense of bravado and self-importance kind of cuts through. like, And then thrown into the mix, like you say, just the really weird kind of patronising, like feel really sorry for kind of Newcastle. They're trying their best. It's like, they're trying, like we're rubbish. We kind of, we can only just scrape by a Newcastle that is in like, absolute turmoil is like like ready to implode did they they might have got relegated that season i don't know um but clearly not not a happy place and it's just like god what a whatever you think about like i don't know joe kinnear being the wrong guy newcastle's like a huge club and you in your what fourth or fifth or sixth game as a premier league manager you're going and having that attitude i thought it was just like god maybe that's doing him a disservice and you know quotes from a match report, don't tell the whole story. But uh, but what? So you you've you've said like the you could well when when did the warning signs really start to kind of become m- much more apparent for you? I mean, like we've talked about that kind of um, that first game and the uh, and looking back and seeing <laughs> seeing some of the highlights. Do you have a kind of a memory when it was like I guess going beyond the signings? It's like okay, this is this is not all good so i mean just firstly that was the season newcastle got relegated yeah so it wasn't wasn't a, like a high watermark in, uh, <laughs> in terms of who we were the caliber of opposition we were beating um it's difficult to remember I, I, without repeating ourselves I, I i do think it probably was the the bolton game and actually it's quite bizarre because i'm looking at you look at the league table so the bolton game was the eighth game of the season we were ninth in the table after that so we were mm. eight games in ninth in the table but it was just that it was the it was like I said at the beginning, it was everything around that game. It was the players, it was the formation, it was just the complete ineptitude in, in the actual performance itself. That was a big, big warning sign for me. And actually, if you look at like the league performance after that game, we then draw the next game against Middlesbrough, but then we start going into free fall. We lose to Villa, we get a point against West Brom, and then he loses every single game until he's sacked <laughs> after that. So yeah. I think yeah. by the Bolton game, I mean, it's not the high mark because I think we got, we were higher in the table after we beat um, Newcastle, but that, that the Newcastle is the last of the last game he wins. Right. And yeah. Yeah. I think, so I, I think that, but I think there was just something that was a moment of pure like crisis in my mind, but the, the, the longer term undercurrent was why are we signing a player like Keith Andrews? Why are we signing a player like Vince Grella? Why are we signing Robbie Fowler? Who who are these people? And is it Danny Simpson? Is that his, is that his first name? Yeah, um, Premier League winner. Though. I mean, fair enough. He went on to win the Premier League <laughs> title at Leicester, but back then he was awful. Um, <laughs> yeah. He was terrible. Um, so it was everything. And then Carlos Villanueva, like, what was that about? Yeah. That yeah. that was kind of this weird process we went through and it, it kind of like got more obsessive during the keen era where we just try and sign random foreigners from south america thinking that well if they're south americans so they must be good in the football like <laughs> who, who is this guy and like yeah. he's clearly not cut out for us so we went from like a really good transfer pro i guess approach with hughes you can unearth some incredible signings value investing with santa cruz mccarthy bellamy nelson samba to, the, mm. to, the, to these people, and, you know, I'm sure they're great people, but they was, weren't cut out for what we needed there and then to, the, to replace the people we were losing. Because by that point, you know, you've also got to think about that Stephen Reid was always injured. So he, he'd kind of like, mm. he'd lost his, his place. Two guy was getting on. You couldn't bank on two, the on two guy in the same way um, that you could. We'd lost Bentley. And we've, we talked about this last episode. The midfield was an issue under Hughes in terms of investing for new for new talent coming through, and mm. I think that that left Ince with that. I think Ince clearly came in seeing that part of the pitch as okay. We need more midfielders. 
And his answer was Villanueva, Grella, and Andrews. <laughs> I mean, you could put a hundred transfer targets in front of me, <laughs> and I would never pick those three in, you know, in a hundred picks. There's, there's not the player, the caliber of player who are going to fill in the shoes of the likes of, you know, picking up a bit more of the slack from Stephen Reed or Two Guy. And I think by this point, had Savage left maybe as well. Yeah, yeah, I think he would have gone. Right. That one. So the sense midfield had been through a lot of churn, and yeah, so I think I think a mix of the, the acute symptom was the Bolton game, but the under longer term undercurrent was the how are we revitalizing the midfield area of the pitch because as I said. The talent was still there in defence. The talent was still there in attack. It was across the middle of the park that we were really struggling. I thought. Yeah, yeah, def- definitely, definitely. I, I can't, I can't disagree with any of that. But um, yeah. I mean, we, the, we've been pretty. Yeah, no. Oh, go I, ahead. I was just going to say, like, in terms of the games, we, like, let's kind of like move it towards this, the, 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 the run that kind of like is ultimately the downfall of ins. When you look at the succession of defeats, are there any of those games that you can remember or stick out to you in terms of like? this feels terminal in the sense that he, he is going to go or he has to go now. This is getting, this is getting bad. It's, it's interesting you say that. I, I remember being massively shocked when he was sacked because I just sacking a, sacking a manager like that was just not something Blackburn Rovers did um, at that time. So I didn't think really any of it was, was terminal and um a lot of the, a lot of the kind of the commentary around that time, if 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 from from looking at it, is saying that you know, people like Graham Lasso saying like it'd be a big mistake to, to sack the manager now. You've got to stick with him. He needs time. Um, Nigel Winterburn like piping up, and it's like, God, was Nigel Winterburn involved with with Rovers? I'd forgotten <laughs> like, that. I'd forgotten <laughs> that he was like some weird assistant defensive coach, wasn't he? It was like, yeah, and it's like never, literally, never heard of that position before. I'd never what, heard. What of were you doing there? And it's almost like Nigel Winterburn has been brought in to shore up the defense, but I've been going to lose subsequent six games. I was, like- I was worried that we'd actually signed Nigel Winterburn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean. So, yeah, it's really it's really interesting. But like, I found it fascinating to read about the um, about the kind of the the period between the um, the Liverpool game um, on the sixth of December, where we lost three one, and then seemingly there had been a big a big kind of like a, like a big push. I don't know, like from from Int saying like, right, we've we've hit rock bottom, but fight back starts here. We are we we've learned from our mistakes. You know, we, we're gonna. The only way is up, and seemingly he had he had kind of given that spiel to kind of John Williams, um, and John Williams had been like quite quite vocal, um, certainly a lot more vocal than you see kind of Steve Waggett now as a CEO uh, in terms of like really kind of commenting quite a lot on almost like day match to match performances and being kind of disappointed with what he what he saw, so. The fact that there was almost quite a, a crescendo building towards this Wigan game, and Wigan just sweep Blackburn aside um, absolutely convincingly, and this is not a this is it's a Wigan side that seemingly has like well, not seemingly does have some good players. I think like Valencia and like Palacios were playing for them at the time, so they had some like players who would who would go on to play, you know, like United and Spurs respectively, like these decent um, guys, but nobody who Blackburn with the kind of players that they sh- they had shouldn't be able to mix it with, but just to be like, just to not even be in the game and then to still see kind of like Paul Ince coming out, hear Paul Ince coming out with this, again, just I've got, the, I've got these quotes afterwards in front of me. It's like, it doesn't matter about Paul Ince. Um, it matters about these players. What will be, will be. Disappointed for my players. Um, I don't care who's in charge. Me or Alex Ferguson, Giving away a two goal star will always uh, be trouble. It's just like God, you're so. There's no kind of contrition there. Maybe, maybe, maybe there shouldn't be. I don't know in terms of what what is the best thing when you're managing a Premier League club. But like God, you were you've just overseen a sixth successive defeat, and yet it's just like seemingly comparing himself to Alex Ferguson. Is is he kind of suggesting that Alex Ferguson? Wouldn't be able to do a better job than him. I I, I don't know, but um, but yeah, that looking back on it now, yeah, that the axe was completely right to fall uh, at that time. But God, it's st- it's still amazing that it, 
it did shock me that we we actually had the kind of the gumption to sack a manager so early in the season. And it's just like Blackburn is a was a club that gave gave managers time. Yeah. So God, like they must have really have been like unequivocal. Like this guy just is is not is not right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, it's 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 really interesting to hear you talk because I had the exact same kind of like feeling at the time, which was that like as a club we we give like we're not we didn't have a reputation for back then for for running through a lot of managers like we Mm -hmm. did give people time we backed people like Hughes we wanted to be seen I think as a club that really invested in young managerial talent and invested in them and committed to it so you're right like even though even though results were so bad I was kind of under the impression that well the Blackburn Rovers, of course, they're going to still keep with him because that's kind of what we do. But to your mm. point about John Williams, like basically putting his foot in uh, and giving giving a running <laughs> yeah. commentary, which probably never helps, to be honest with you. Um, mm. But I also do wonder, and obviously we're, we're not privy to any of this. I do wonder, like, what kind of communication between the players and the mm. the, the the running of the club, what that level of communication was like in terms well, of this guy. You, you, you had a Harvard man. <laughs> in central defense was what was what was uh, ryan nelson like reflecting on at this time in his kind of really really kind of in-depth blog right <laughs> post-match post-match write-up fully referenced reflections that, on an john williams but no i i i agree with you like that the wigan performance was was shocking i i, I didn't go to the game but I just rem- I just remember my, my memory of that game, like you know, looking back at it now, was that it just looked like the players they just, they they literally had given up, and it just mm. felt like not that I would ever condone players losing a game, nor am I implying that that is what they set out to do, but it just had the feel of like if we just don't if, if we lose this, we know he's gone, and I mm. think that was mm. a sentiment to your point going into the game. This was a huge game for Inns. He had to get something. He had to stem the tide. We were losing yeah. too many games. We were 19th in the table. This was not sustainable. And I think the thing I forgot looking back at this was actually that we were we were at risk of being cut adrift from, mm. from the pack. And that was just too big a risk relating to what I was saying earlier about we need the financial security of being a Premier League club. Like mm. it's not, mm. we don't have a business model. Well, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a separate question here about whether Blackburn Rovers ever has a sustainable business model with the level of aspiration <laughs> I think we have as a, as, as a fan base, but even more so when we're not in the Premier League. So yeah, yeah it's, in, it's interesting hearing you talk because I think, I think yeah, I, I've had a very similar kind of mindset about where we were and what I thought the club would or would not do. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. But do you, think, do you think he ever could have turned it around? No. <laughs> Next question. No, 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 no. Like, I, um, I guess my take on that is no, because the players clearly didn't play for him and they didn't buy into his methods. Mm. How, how, can you, how can you claim to be able to turn it around when the people that you are leading don't want to follow you? That's just yeah. fundamental. It's, yeah. it's fundamental 101. Like, it's what management is about. If they don't buy into your methods and buy into your approach, Take Hughes as, a, as, a, as, a, as an exa- as, a, as an alternate example. The players clearly built, bought into his philosophy, worked hard for him, but also played good football. They built, they, they bought into that. They never bought into ins. I don't know. Maybe I'm being too, too kind of like flippant. What do you think? Do you think they could, he could have turned it around, or do you think because okay, the case for ins here, and then I want to hear your answer is if you actually you know look at the I think the number of points that were required to stay up, it was actually quite low. So I actually don't think it would have required that many points to stay in the league that year. Now, he obviously had only got three wins when he took out, when, when, when he was fired. Mm. Would it have been that difficult for him to get to, uh, what was the actual, so yeah, so Newcastle went down on 34 points. You could have survived on 35 points that season. It's very low. How many points were we on at that point? Oh, that's a good question. So he won three games. No. <laughs> and then we had at least Nine, three. Ten, I think he had at least. We're on 13 points. And then he had one, two, three, four. He had four draws in there as well. So he was on 13 points. 13 points. So yeah, it, was, it wasn't actually that hard to work out. How many points? <laughs> yeah. could never do that. Oh, so, right, he, yeah. so he needed he needed 22 points 
in 19 games. He basically needed around a point a game to stay up. Do you think he could have done that? He's never getting that. He's never getting that. No chance. I mean, going back to almost that question about kind of notable results, um, losing to Roy Keane Sunderland at home um, with Kenwin Jones scoring. Kenwin Jones is such a like Bobby Zamora style player. And like, you know, nothing against Bobby Zamora, but like too good for the championship. Is even, I'll just finish, I'll finish the train of thought. Too good for the championship, nowhere near good enough really for the, for the Premier League. And yet he just kind of like saw, saw his way through the Blackburn Rovers defence to, to, to score the kind of their second goal. And it's just like, oh, no, like God, what a, what an embarrassment of managerial kind of, um, like kind of capabilities on the show, Paul Ince versus Roy Keane. Just like I, I, this isn't just me backtracking because, like, even the thought of this, this going out to a small audience makes me very scared that Roy Keane might get wind of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, there, there is probably there's probably a part of me that is is like that, but um, I do really like Roy Keane. I love him as a pundit. I think he's hilarious, um, but not not a good football manager. Um, really, uh, there there is nothing to, just, to suggest that he is, and yet he was able to kind of um, he was able to best the the battle of the the Manchester United alumni uh, at that time. Yeah, like, I, I know you're a big I know you're a big fan of like uh, Roy Keane's managerial career for, for like for, for for a variety of reasons. There's some of the anecdotes that go along with it, but I'm wondering at this time, you know, so what is it, 2008? Pep Guardiola is very early in his managerial career. I wonder if he's sitting down on the weekend, right? Okay, I'm going to browse through the foreign leagues and see what games to watch to kind of like see what I managerial ideas I can soak up. And he turns across to the Premier League channel and sees Paul Inns versus Roy Keane. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's like, I think I can do it. You know, I was a bit, I was a bit nervous. You know, maybe I, maybe he had a bit of an imposter syndrome about whether he could actually cut it in management. That he's like, I am probably going to be the best manager in the world. Yeah. that's not even being arrogant but yeah it's, it's funny just kind of dwelling on Keane as well because like again part of research like <laughs> Paul Ince like sticks his neck out defending kind of like Roy Keane who you know, was under his own uh, kind of scrutiny at that time that time and just saying like yeah. you know the press of a vendetta against us kind of ex-Man United players you know it's like what what's like on, on what basis I mean that 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 just doesn't make any sense. I mean, unless I'm missing something really, really kind of glaringly obvious, but there doesn't seem to be any kind of like anti-Manchester United or anti-Alex Ferguson bias that would extend to really kind of like... No, um... no absolutely. If, if anything, like you could almost say the, the opposite because I think that the likes of Mark Hughes were talked up as a potential successor to Alex Ferguson... Paul was never taught. Well, was never, so, I, I, yeah, it was, a, it was a bizarre kind of attack line to say that because there was a Manchester United connection, they were unfairly um, targeted. And I even think you know, other managers who've come from that tree, like Steve Bruce, have had an even easier ride. Um, mm. from, yeah, from I, from I would say so. But those managers, at least like Steve Bruce, and Mark, they weren't as kind of, again, just going back to the earlier point, as adversarial. Like you're... Yeah. Well, you're massively under the cosh, Paul Ince. Don't go picking fights with, like, the media who are probably going to write a lot of bad stuff about you anyway because of how bad your team is playing, and, and maybe for other reasons. But it's it's really... It just smacked of, of such naivety. Um, again, be, being charitable. Yeah, and the, 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 the final thing I'll say on that as well, because I, I, I don't want to not mention it because it was something that was discussed about. The other thing that Paulins brought up was how he thought that race uh, came into it in terms of he wasn't given the same fair shot as other managers. Now, I don't really want to go too far down that rabbit hole in the sense that was it or was it not? I just think the broader issue or thing I thought was most interesting when I was like researching this episode was an article, a really interesting, like thoughtful piece I read after he'd been sacked, which was that rather than focusing on the specifics of Paul and his tenure in the context of racism, and, you know, we can point to like how he was like categorically a bad manager, the broader question or the thing that was more highlighted um, in the broader context is 
the lack of just other qualified and credible candidates in the kind of like the, in, I guess, in the pipeline for these kind of jobs. Mm. And that's a failure of football governance and the FA and the Premier League compared to some other sports like American football, mm. where there are many more, uh, say, African-American coaches. So mm. I think I'm less interested, or not I'm not interested, but I, I think that the ins, the ins issue is more, I think it speaks more poorly to, to, the, to the way in which English football has been able to nurture and bring through other successful black British players in a way that Ince was the first English black manager in the Premier League. Um, you know, it hasn't been the last, but mm. I think there's a broader thing there around the, the failures of the Premier League, who I think are still dragging their feet in terms of some of the measures they, they could introduce. So I do want to just mention that because it, Paul Ince did talk about it at the time in terms of that being that being an issue. Um, mm. But if I could just segue from that back to the Sunderland game for one second, because <laughs> it's actually quite funny. It's actually quite funny. Look, I'm, I'm just looking at the lineup that day and it's really kind of indicative of how, how Paul he managed the squad. We had seven defenders uh, on the pitch that day. So we had seven defenders and I can only, I can't even imagine how this formation works, but the thing that does stand out to me is Stephen Warnock must've been playing centre midfield that day. And that was a weird thing. He tried on a number of occasions. He put a left back in centre midfield because I remember him saying, quote unquote, he's one of our best ball playing players and we need to get him on the ball more. It's like, but he's a left back. Actually Cole's a great left back. Don't put him in sentiment field just because he's a good player. <laughs> yeah. It kind of it kind of it makes me think of like playing football at school where you just pick the you put the biggest kid on the field in sentiment field and you would just bully everyone who's not good at football. <laughs> yeah. He's just so much bigger than you. I don't know. Like that, that, that just looking at the lineup just makes me laugh that, 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 that is that is crazy. I mean Steve Steve Warnock was fast becoming one of our best players. Um, his, no, his no assist, question. By the way, his assist for the Santa Cruz goal against Everton away is a phenomenal long ball. So yeah, I mean... It's, it's, it's he, almost like a 40-yard cross-field pass that Santa Cruz takes down. Unbelievable. And I forgot how good Warnock was when I saw that. Yeah, I mean, he is... He, he was. He was fantastic. I've got a lot of time for Stephen Warnock. I think he had... He, he became was he player of the season that season or maybe the season afterwards, but they, they were clearly recognizing his value. I think he was like, when we had the white and red away strip, it might've been the following season. I think he was like modeling that on the Rovers website, you know, kind of giving a lot of, lot of shout outs to Rovers.co.uk. <laughs> that's that's where, where, the, where the images kind of stick with me. But, um, but yeah, just because he, he's capable as, at a stretch, something of a wing back sometimes, or he's, a, he's an offensive minded fullback, doesn't mean he can go then into the middle of middle of the park and no. just kind of run things from there. That is that is a bit of a stretch. Yeah, yeah, bit of a stretch. You know, it was it was, it was, kind, of, it was <laughs> yeah. kind of farcical. I don't I don't think I've ever you know I, I never I never saw Sooners play Niels Eric Johansson in centre midfield. Um, you know, yeah. or, or even or even Tony Mowbray be convinced to put uh, Derek Williams in centre midfield. Like you know, there, there are there are limits to like how you can move players around the pitch. I mean, fair enough. Left yes. back, centre back, centre back to left back. I get it, but that was just an extreme example. But let's uh, let's kind of like wrap this up in terms of um, the conversation about Paul Ince. I think we've we've done a really good like tour of all the issues and ins and outs of what what went. I was going to say what went right, but really not much went right apart from that opening day mm. uh, opening day of the season against Everton. Uh, is there anything we've we've missed or any shout outs in particular moments that you want to make sure that the, the that we kind of cover before we uh, finish? I think it's I think it's more like the um like the, the bigger context, um, if you like. So it's not it's not a specific moments, but this is we 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 reveled in the last episode about just how good um, and sustained. Um, Hughes's kind of quality performances were, or the, the Hughes team's quality performances were, and even though you know Ince goes and we 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 kind of stabilize a little bit, it really I, I look back now and feel like this was a really seminal moment because even though the board at that time was held in very high regard. John Williams was held in very high regard. It's, I don't know, did it betray a bit of desperation um, that was perhaps clouding their decision-making uh, capabilities? Paul Ince <laughs> managed to lead two side. He didn't have, 
his professional qualifications and speaking to the man i've never seen a media performance where he inspires me um so what is it like he the fact that he was a really good footballer that's like one out of you know i've listed just like four kind of credentials there that he might kind of like tick the box on but uh yeah i just think obviously this is now kind of like cleverness or whatever it's observation after the, after the event but i think it's just like i see it as like the dark clouds are really starting to gather around around blackburn rovers and i think you would be you would be uh, forgiven or it'd be perfectly right to say that you know Venki's taking over a couple of years later is when that actually happens but I I think there's there's something in kind of disappointment that shows that right this is now this is now kind of like we took it we took this wasn't this doesn't even feel like a calculated gamble this feels like a gamble full-on gamble um didn't work and now we're in a we're in a bad situation and yeah just it's almost like a bit of a, a disaster film it's like I'm, I'm i'm now quite excited about like the impending doom that's kind of coming up and looking forward to kind of talking through that um but yeah just quite like sad for my kind of early 20s self at the time who maybe thought that um getting rid of ints and bringing in someone else would just kind of sustain Blackburn Rovers in the Premier League for a for a, for a decent decent spell going onwards and and sadly that that wasn't to be the case so very a very uh reflective and long-winded uh reflective take there but um but what no, about I, you I know no it's, it's I really I really I'm I'm here for those reflective takes that's why <laughs> that's why we are that's why we are doing doing this and I think the way you described it, I think I think my therapist would, would say that you're we're in the process of grieving. We're in, we're in the process of processing <laughs> the trauma of what happened, and you know, all these years later, we're really coming to terms with, with what happened. And look, I almost want to finish the podcast without me even adding anything because I think you summed it up so eloquently in terms of the broader landscape of the risk this symbolised and the direction that the club is going in. I think the only thing I'd add to that for the broader context of the Premier League and where it was and where it was going right now was that this was a time when I feel like, excuse me, I feel like this is when Tottenham was starting to emerge as they weren't just a mid-table side anymore. They were actually becoming like, "Mm, yeah, they're actually potentially like a top six side. Man Mm. City had been bought out the initial time. And there was this sense that the the clubs around us who who we'd kind of like, been competitive with we were competitive with Tottenham we were competitive with Man City we're just on completely different trajectories and there were other mm. clubs in the league that were getting better they were getting money and they were getting investment and we were still just Blackburn Rovers operating the way we were and we'd lost the the riches of, of, of Jack Walker yes we were still uh, supported by the Walker Trust but the level of investment wasn't the same and I think to your point about the risk in terms of like what we were doing I kind of see the Premier League in this. My memory in that late latter part of the first decade of the 2000s is that the Premier League starts to get even better. It coincides mm. with like a period of dominance, I think, in European football for um, a number of English clubs. I mean, I think we dominated that Champions League semi-finals and stuff like that. And I just think that we were really struggling to to hold our own, and, and we'd really gone toe to toe with Hughes. And it's almost like it's almost like a moment in Rocky when is it even Drago in Rocky four gets hit and, you know, he like bleeds and it's like, Oh wow. Okay. We're, we're, we're actually in trouble here. Like yeah, we're, yeah. On, we're on the way down. Like Rocky's going to keep hitting us and hitting us. And unless we've got a counter punch, we're going to get knocked out eventually, whether it's next season, the season after or the season after that. But yeah, I, it's a really, really interesting moment in the club's trajectory. Cause I think you're right. It's a, such a turning point. Yeah, that's I, I I love it. I love it. That is so you you say that there wasn't there wasn't a a way to kind of uh, to kind of follow on that that's fantastic and it's so interesting what you say. I mean, like the um, like just uh, the Man City takeover really really kind of lodged itself in my mind as like a problem because I we didn't we never obviously we didn't take six points off Man City every season. But we, we always seem to have their number. They would always kind of cough up, you know, kind of three to three, three to six points a season. And it was just like, 
it was so it was it was that as a bit of a piggy bank in terms of what that was available each as you look at the fixtures and where the points are going to come from and all, all of that kind of stuff. But as you say more broadly, it was like these are the type of teams we can we can we can beat. We can we can beat quite maybe decisively at home and then kind of grind out a good win away or something. And, and yeah, I would definitely kind of count Spurs in in that in that category. But yeah, really, really starting to really starting to to see some kind of daylight, not only with those teams who we'd really kind of fought tooth and nail with, but yeah, we'd had in the last episode talking about you know beating Man United home and away in 2005. You're not getting near Man United, really. You're not getting near Chelsea. Um, they are like they're like steamrolling steamrolling teams. So it's like the the pot of points that is available has just shrunk massively, and it's all just got a little bit real. Like the party's over, <laughs> and now it's like you are you are fighting, you are having to get your elbows out for everything, and it's just maybe maybe that was always the case, but it just never felt like that before. And this is the year when it just it just comes home to roost, and you're like, oh god, Premier League's actually really tough. It is. It is. It is. It, exactly. It's really tough. And I think on that note, let's leave it for let's leave it for, t- for today's episode. Uh, on next episode, on our next episode, we're going to talk about uh, the, the the next manager to take over in amidst a crisis. Rovers line nineteen, Sam Allardyce. So we'll talk about how that went that there was the rest of that season, but also his following tenure in charge. And if you're a fan of really atrocious long ball football, if you like. <laughs> If you like your centre halves playing as strikers, then this is the episode for you. It's going to be it's going to be a fun one. It's going to be a fun one. There are there are some really interesting me- memories and moments in that, not least for Burnley's return to the Premier League. So we'll discuss that on next our next episode. And until then, uh, we'll see you soon. Take Thanks care. Everyone.